Hi everyone, it's me, Rebecca. Briefly here to interrupt the very start of this week's episode with a small yet very important trigger warning. This episode, as you may have already gathered, discusses the topic of sexual violence. And while we don't go into detail about any particular case, we do discuss research pertaining to sexual violence and support for survivors. We also discuss statistics revealed in research and broadly discuss campaigns that have been created to raise awareness, such as hashtag never okay. With this in mind, if you wish to continue listening to the episode, and we really hope that you do, note that it's probably not suitable for younger listeners, and perhaps you'd like to listen to this week's interview while wearing headphones, or maybe when you're on your own and likely not to be disturbed. Now, on with the show. I only go to get my parcel and they'll ask me, are you busy tonight? I say I might be playing Xbox, I've caught chicken pox, or any other excuse they could say there'll be a man bleeding fire tiger walking a high wire, no I never mean to be rude, I'm never really interested, not even when they've instead it, unless they say there's free drinks and food. Welcome back everybody to the next episode of Free Food, Free Drinks, where this week we are speaking to Claire Slater from the University of Bristol. If you think about sexual violence, it's actually a spectrum. At the far end, it is the extreme things that we all think about, the actual physical attacks. But it starts with the everyday negativity, the insults, the online slut shaming, you know, all of those sorts of things, which actually, unfortunately, can be very prevalent in our culture, not just student culture, but our culture. On this episode, we are talking about research that Claire undertook as part of her master's thesis when she undertook the MA in Student Affairs in Higher Education. Her research focused on sexual violence amongst female students on campus. And we have to say in advance of speaking with her, Rob and I both read her thesis. I read it a couple of times because it's quite a moving bit of research. I'm sure you will agree, Rob. Yeah, absolutely. It's a difficult read, but is one that's very, very important and contributed a lot to the sector and a lot to the area. So thank you really to Claire for putting out there and for putting those survivors' voices in her thesis. It, it was a, and a very important piece of work. Yeah, and the great thing about this episode as well is that Claire talks a lot about the literature review that she undertook as part of her thesis and the gap in research out there and the comparison between the UK and the UK between the UK and the US, I should say. But I think actually for a lot of people who don't work in this space or perhaps it's not part of their day-to-day job or current remit, there's an awful lot in this episode that you will learn or will be new to you and hopefully, as always, will be relevant to your particular role. So have a listen. And if you think this episode might be of use to somebody else who you work with or somebody else in another university or perhaps a PBSA operator, please circulate to them. It's really important that this message and this information is shared wide and far. Also, don't hesitate to share your feedback with us. We love to hear from you. You can tweet us at freefoodpod or as always, you can email us at freefoodpod at gmail.com. Claire Slater is currently the Deputy Director of Residential Life and Wellbeing at the University of Bristol. Her role sees her whole responsibility for res life, wellbeing and accommodation services, which includes working in collaboration with colleagues from across student services. Prior to this, Claire was previously the head of student support at Keele University and led a wide range of teams including money and welfare, international student support, disability and dyslexia support. She also led a number of projects aimed at improving the student experience and supporting students in their transitions throughout their entire time at university. Claire is a qualified sexual violence liaison officer and managed the sector leading sexual violence prevention and support team at Keele and the award winning hashtag Never okay active bystander campaign. 
And finally, Claire is a graduate of the MA Student Affairs in Higher Education and her research focused on the experience of survivors of sexual violence and the importance of specialised support. Claire, you are very welcome to the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. We're very excited to have you on board. I wanted to start off by saying that prior to this episode recording, you kindly shared your MA dissertation for Robert to read in advance, which, by the way, the structure has provided a whole lot of clarity for my own dissertation, so thank you. I wanted to start off by saying it's a brilliant and moving piece of research that I read three times over. The topic of sexual violence as experienced by students, or for anyone for that matter, is a difficult one to write about. But you treated the experience of those students with compassion and respect and care, and I really felt that shone through your dissertation. Before we delve into that, you wrote an excellent literature review highlighting the gap in knowledge and research in UK in comparison to the US. Perhaps we could start there by providing an overview of what has happened in the UK in recent years. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much, both of you, for having me on your podcast. Um, I'm really excited to be talking to you. Yeah, so the NUS research is really, really important, especially the first survey, which was called Hidden Marks, published in 2011. And this was actually the first national student survey in the UK. And that compares quite significantly to the situation in the US, because in the US, for maybe 50 years, they've been doing regular surveys of student experiences, doing lots of different research on the topic of sexual violence, the reasons for it, the factors that contribute to it, the impact of it. But in the UK, although some academics did do a lot of really good research, it didn't have the profile that it has in the US. So when Hidden Marks was published, it was really quite shocking, I think. So it was an anonymous online survey and the results came back to say really that one in four respondents of the student population had experienced some form of unwanted sexual behavior, one in four. And that, that's just the respondents. And I think that when you think about that, one in four, that that's, you know, every student probably knows someone who's experienced this. And I think another really important thing about this research was that it showed that unlike the popular rape myth, that it's all about stranger danger, actually 84% of these students knew the person who assaulted them. And in 60% of these cases, it was another student. So I think the impact, the prevalence of sexual violence on our campuses really came to the surface because of this important research that was done by the NUS. And it also explored the devastating impact of these experiences on the survivors. So this is obviously in terms of their health and well-being, but also their relationships, their academic performance, and really, in most cases, probably every aspect of their daily life. Another really significant element of this research was the low disclosure rates for these types of cases. And all the research, both in the US and in the UK, highlights this. This research suggested that only 10% of students who'd experienced sexual violence reported it to the police. And when this research was done, only 4% actually reported it to their institution. So I think those figures as well really demonstrate that there's a lot to be done in universities. And I think this is where a lot of universities have actually done a lot of work since this research was published to both improve the situation for students, the experiences, 
but also to give students the confidence to report either to the police or to their institution. And you mentioned there, Claire, that um, one in four students had experienced unwanted sexual behaviour. I think and much of that was the word that you used towards them or advancements. And also the shock that was felt in the sector when this report came out. Do you think that part of this shock was because perhaps people didn't believe this kind of thing was happening on their campuses or that it was being brushed under the carpet or like you said there was a lack of research and so no one really knew do you think that was part of the reason why there was such shock I think it was a combination of all of those things I think a lot of it is to do with rape myths as I mentioned you know people think it's all about stranger danger it's all about people coming out from a night coming home from a night out getting attacked in the street things like that Unfortunately, a lot of these incidents happen in their own home, in their own rooms on our campuses. And I think it's also partly maybe it was one of these unspoken things. People didn't talk about it. Often it's quite common survivors are worried to talk because they're afraid people might not believe them. So there was a lot of unsaid, I think, on our campuses. And as it came out to the surface, yeah, that's what caused the shock and then led other people to do more research into it. So this particular research was then followed up by another piece of research also done by by the NUS, which was called That's What She Said, published in 2013. And that looked in more detail at the experiences of women students on our campuses in particular, and looked into issues of what we call lad culture. So that's talking about the types of sexist and misogynist attitudes and behaviours which do exist on our campuses and then can also lead to a range of unacceptable behaviours towards women. And these are the types of things that sometimes people dismiss as banter or a bit of fun, you know, lads out on a night, having a laugh, all of that stuff. But I think what we need to realise is that it's not banter, it's not a laugh, it's serious, it's it's harmful and that often these behaviours lead to this negative and toxic culture which sometimes makes it acceptable to take that to the next level and I think if you think about sexual violence it's actually a spectrum at the far end it is the extreme things that we all think about the actual physical attacks but it starts with the everyday negativity the insults the online slut shaming, you know, all of those sorts of things, which actually, unfortunately, can be very prevalent in our culture, not just student culture, but our culture. That's an interesting point as well. And I think maybe was part of tying into the surprise of the sector that you mentioned is when you discuss this idea of it being something that was previously identified as stranger danger and being kind of one-off events i think clearly it was frightening to realize that actually it was something kind of deeper and embedded into culture itself which you know is quite a scary thing to reflect on but it was so it's clearly it's so important to reflect on that but i have a feeling that that maybe that realization that it it had acculturated itself into the sort of almost societal norms was was quite an upsetting and drastic realisation for everyone. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. 
yeah, and it, it's it's obviously a, a horrible position to be in when you're you're then reflecting and, and seeing that you know it's one in four people affected and you kind of almost realize it's too almost too late already uh, to really employ some of the the sort of ground roots things and the realization of trying to bring it back to something. And obviously, we've talked a little bit about the United States and and the difference there. And myself and Rebecca have spoken to you a little bit before this, but also have some experience and, and knowledge over the US through um, our tutor on the MA Student Affairs Program, uh, Nikki. And she's talked a lot about how the US is structured um, with Title IX and all of the arrangements they have in the US. And it, it kind of strikes me as quite surprising that that we in the UK seem so far behind that. Uh, do you sort of, is, is there anything through the research that you found that shows perhaps why the UK has either not picked up on this or whether they've just not realized it's a part of culture or what makes the US so different to the UK, do you think? I think one of the key things is this, the historical context in the UK and how universities operated. So until 2016, most universities followed what are known as the Zelic guidelines. And these are some legal guidelines which date back to 1994 which many institutions interpreted to suggest that anything that could be considered a criminal matter should not be investigated under the university's disciplinary procedures. So this in reality meant that if a survivor of a sexual assault wasn't able or didn't feel able to report this allegation to the police, then there was no action that could be taken by the universities. And these were the guidelines that universities were following until the change in the culture report was published by UUK in 2016. I would say that the UUK change in the culture report in 2016 represents a significant turning point because this report not only used the earlier research from the NUS highlighting the issues that we faced in our universities, but also produced a series of recommendations and expectations on universities that they should take action to address this issue. And at the same time, a set of new legal guidelines were produced by Pinsent Masons, which also stated that universities should also review their disciplinary procedures and introduce new processes to enable universities to start investigating and taking appropriate action. But if we turn back the clock, until 2016, universities were really reluctant to do anything at all in this area. And scarily, you know, that is only four years ago, so it is relatively new. And would it be the case, Claire, I know you can't speak on behalf of every university in the UK, but are the universities or have many universities that you're aware of started to adopt those recommendations from the change in the culture report? Have you seen a change in the sector? Yeah, I definitely have. I mean, I think that's why I say that the UK change in the culture report was a turning point. Now, there was one key thing at the same time, HEFKI, which is now the Office for Students, um, provided quite a lot of funding, which universities were able to bid for. And this enabled a lot of universities to actually kickstart their work in this area. And there was a whole spate of projects funded by HEFKI, um, which universities 
used to do in different ways. So some of them did awareness raising campaigns, some of them set up new services, um, but all, most of them at the same time also started reviewing their discipline regulations as well. But what I would say, and this is where there is a difference in universities, is that the UK report was only a series of recommendations. So there is still considerable variation about what different universities do and how they do it. So it's not consistent. But something else which is really important is that the Office for Students, just before COVID hit, started a consultation and they, they sent out this survey. It was a public consultation asking universities what they were actually doing. And universities could fill this in themselves, but also students and students' unions could fill this in. And there is an expectation that when this consultation is finished, the Office for Students are likely um, to introduce some more guidelines for, for universities, which will actually lay out, I think, more consistency um, and about the expectations and what different universities should be doing. But unfortunately, this has been delayed by COVID. But I think when that comes out, even universities that maybe aren't as far down the line will have to actually do something. Does that make sense? Because I, I mean, I don't know how this Office for Students consultation will play out, but I think there's a feeling across the sector that, that it could change from being a guidelines more to requirements for universities to actually do something. Yeah, that makes that makes absolute sense. I understand completely what you're saying. Um, and so I don't, maybe you can myth bust something for me because I always hear about something called double jeopardy where, you know, if a student's being investigated for something um, by the police, they can't be investigated by the university. Is it the case that if a student reports it to a university, then they, they investigate it and involve the police or they don't? What is best practice now? That's a really difficult situation because... A university has to be really careful not to jeopardise any criminal proceedings. So what would normally happen would be if a student reports and talks to, for example, if a student comes and talks to a sexual violence liaison officer, their role is to make sure that the student understands what their reporting options are, that they can report to the police. Or if they don't feel able to report to the police or they don't want to report to the police, if the case involves another student, then usually they could then report that to the university. So it's about making the survivor have that power to make that choice and to make that decision about what they want to do. So if they then decide that they do want to report to the police, the university would usually suspend any of their own investigations and then the police would start doing their criminal investigation. You mentioned sexual violence liaison officer or SVLO, and that is a role that featured prominently in your research. Um, I think there was a sentence towards the end of your thesis that said a student had said that an SVLO saved their life because of the amazing role they played in assisting them. If you could talk us about that role and what that looks like in a student services model or makeup, is the SVLO officer someone employed by a university? Are they external? How does it typically work? Usually the SVLO, Sexual Violence Liaison Officer, is employed by the university. So it was quite a new role just around the time of the change in the culture report, 
I actually did work with Lyme Culture alongside some colleagues from Greenwich University to talk about what support, what dedicated support could be provided by the universities to ensure that any survivors were both appropriately supported and referred on to specialist external services in the community, but also had that information, like I mentioned just then, about what their options were, what, what they could do if they wanted to report, and, and all of that sort of stuff. So yeah, normally, the SVLOs are, are employed by the universities, and then the structure varies. So anyone who wants to be an SVLO, there is um, an accredited training course, which is offered by Lyme Culture, um, Lime Culture are based in Manchester, not trying to do a plug for them, but they are brilliant. Um, they've done a lot of work in this area, both in terms of providing support for ISVAs. So those are independent sexual violence advisors who work in the community. But they also do a lot of work on awareness raising to sort of change these attitudes. Um, they've worked with different sports teams and things like that. So. You, if you if you wanted to work in this area, if you were interested, you could go and do this course. So it's quite an intensive course, um, but it prepares you to, to get the knowledge and the skills to sensitively support survivors and then also refer them on. So it's not about the SVLOs doing all the work. It's about them being the go-to person in the university who then liaises across the university to make sure that student has the right academic support in terms of, for example, submitting extenuating circumstances or the right accommodation support. For example, if they want to move accommodation or maybe they want to take some time out from their course. So instead of the survivor having to tell their story over and over again, they talk to the SVLO and then the SVLO helps them, guides them, shares information as agreed with them and things like that. So they liaise across the institution, but then they also liaise externally. So to be successful, I think it's really important that the SVLO also builds up a relationship with the pro professional services in that area where, where they're working so that they can refer students out. But then these specialist organizations then refer students back in to provide like joined up care. And then also sometimes you can build up a relationship with the police as well. So if the police know that they that a university's got a sexual violence liaison officer team, they might refer students, if a student reports to the police and hasn't been to the university, the police might say, oh, did you know that you've got SVLOs at your university? They might be a good person to go and talk to. That sounds like a fantastic principle and a fantastic role. But then on the flip side of that, dare I say, it actually sounds remarkably obvious to have something like that. And, and it, it's part of what I found your research so engaging and difficult to read was kind of the, the reality that things like this are so new. And it, it feels quite shocking in a way that we're in a place now where that is considered best practice, but is something that perhaps didn't exist before is quite shocking as a, as a principle. Because as, as an idea, it feels quite similar to in very different ways, but fairly similar to having something like a mental health first aider is having somebody there for a specific purpose that students can go to or can be called upon. And the idea of having a, an SVLO in a university is something that can only be welcome. And as you've mentioned, 
hopefully will be tied into something that may come back from the OFS um, because I can't imagine SVLOs are, are prevalent across all universities at the moment, I assume, uh, but I presume the model is being adopted relatively quickly, albeit perhaps not everywhere, I would assume. Well, the last time that I looked into it, there were about 30 universities who'd actually adopted the model. Some have done things a little bit differently and just asked their existing support teams to provide that support. But I think that having done that training myself and knowing how extensive it is and how challenging the role is and how important it is to get it right, I would say that all universities should adopt that model. I think the challenge for a lot of universities is is funding. But for me, and I think that my research shows this as well, Getting it right can make such a difference. I, I'm really committed that, that we do do it. And that's really why I did my research on that particular topic, because as SVLOs were new, there wasn't any research into the impact of the work. And I thought it was really important that we got that voice of the survivors out there so that other people could read and hear about the importance, the difference that this service could make so that other student services bodies for example if they were struggling to get the funding they could make a case using the sort of evidence that I'd provided so yeah obviously I'm 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 a real advocate for this model and I and I do think that everyone should have something similar I think the model is is admirable and is something which your research clearly shows the value and the worth of it, having that named contact, having that person that students know is there. Also, from a from a sort of reverse point of view, in theory, as as kind of a potential, like the word perpetrator, but the person who who perhaps on the other side of these incidents also is is aware of that existing. It's embedding that idea in the culture that that the universities are aware of this that. It, it, we know it's happening in society that we know that it's something that's a problem and can't be denied anymore as your as your research and the NUS research has shown I think it, it kind of does both sides it offers that element of security to a degree for survivors to know there is somebody there who is an off, a, a liaison officer for that issue but the reverse of which also kind of puts and embeds into culture that this is not something that we're just ignoring. This is something we know about and are, are trying actively to do something about. Yeah, I think that's true. Also, I think not. It, it varies in different universities, but sometimes the sexual violence liaison officers can also take on a campaigning role and an awareness raising role, working maybe with other students to do some proactive campaigning. So not only is that support there, but you're having those open conversations about that issue, you know, making students aware that the support's there, but also we don't tolerate tolerate that sort of behaviour on our campus. So I think it does deliver quite clear messages to the students. Well, that provides a lovely segue, Claire. Thank you, whether that was intentional or not, to I know you have been involved in campaigns in a number of universities that you've worked in, both at Keele and Bristol. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about those, uh, the creation of them, how they're implemented, the response from students and staff um, in those universities about those particular campaigns. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the key things is that, yes, we can provide support, but also we do need to try to work to change attitudes and behaviours. So as I mentioned, the, the SVLO network at Keele 
were very active in working with the students' union to introduce a campaign called Never Okay. And that hashtag, Never Okay, was has been used by quite a lot of other universities as well. So it's sort of gained momentum and people became familiar with it. But that Never Okay campaign was used to challenge, again, some of those myths and stereotypes. So at Keele, we had a poster campaign which use some of the stereotypes and then challenge them. So, for example, um, there, there could have been something about what someone was wearing or if they'd been drinking too much. And then it flipped it, if you like, on its head and then said, never OK, um, just to try to make people think about some of the stereotypes that they have and to make them reflect and come to the conclusion themselves that these types of behaviours and beliefs are never OK. So, so that was the campaign that we developed at Kiel, and it started off um, focusing on, on sexual violence and raising awareness around that. But actually, we, we like I said, we worked very hard with the Students' Union and reflected on a whole range of different unacceptable and discriminatory behaviours. And we decided that we needed to, if we were going to campaign to raise awareness and challenge behaviours around sexual violence, we also needed to do the same thing around all forms of discriminatory behaviour. So that campaign was actually then rolled out to challenge things such as homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, hate crime, disability discrimination. And we used the same hashtag, never OK, and the same imagery with sort of unacceptable be comments, unacceptable behaviours, and then flagged up that that was never okay. And, and that was really successful. We got really good buy-in from the students. We actually recruited different um, student ambassadors to help us with that campaigning because I think, you know, when a campaign's peer-led, it, it has a lot more traction. We worked with student societies. We trained up student leaders. And then another thing linked to the campaign is something, again, which is pretty big in the US, is the, the concept of being an active bystander. So if you see something, you have this, the confidence or the skills or the knowledge to actually say something or do something to challenge that sort of behavior. So that was a key part of our campaigning at Keel to actually deliver some active bystander workshops and again, to encourage students um, to speak out about these unacceptable behaviours. And something that I remember, which, you know, I'm really quite proud about, actually. At Keel, um, there was a Facebook group which all students used to use. And sometimes it used to get a bit out of hand. But then I saw students going on there and actually referring back to the Never OK campaign using that hashtag to actually challenge those types of unacceptable behaviours on that social media platform. So I think that, for me, it demonstrated much more than any evaluation or survey that that campaign was actually making a difference, that students were reflecting on those behaviours and that students themselves had the confidence to challenge those behaviours. Yeah, you can definitely consider it a success if it's made it onto social media in some way, shape or form. I remember, and this is 
it's not connected to well it's maybe it's slightly connected but we ran a campaign once when I worked in my previous role and it was um like a bulletin board and true resident lifestyle and we had um a code on it that you could scan and it brought you to the video about tea which clearly explained to you about consent and um, I don't know if anyone has seen that and um all of a sudden it was all over the students social media talking about consent and about tea and I was like, we've done it. We've got the message out there because it's kind of reached the kind of wider community using the platforms that they use and are more familiar with. So you can definitely count that as success and something to be proud of. We also chatted about that. There's a campaign called Respect, I believe, in Bristol. Yeah, so that that's really the Bristol equivalent of Never Okay. So we called it Respect. Um, it's very much a campaign in development. And over the last few years, we have been focusing on healthy relationships, respect, consent. But like the Never Okay campaign, we are planning from the start of next year, again, to take this campaign further and to use it to challenge all forms of unacceptable behavior. And I think at the, mo at the, at, at the minute, this is really, really important. So as you know, I also work in res life and accommodation. And before lockdown, there were issues. There were there were examples of harassment and unacceptable behaviour towards certain student groups. And we know that these things are still going on. And right now, of course, Black Lives Matter is really important. It's a really important movement. And I think that we can use the Respect campaign to raise awareness about all of these types of issues and try to ensure as much as we can that our halls, communities respect these key values of our university and by working with the students maybe even before we get they get here so that they're familiar with these values and they understand what the expectations are around communal living and respect I think that that can help us to address some of the issues that we do sometimes experience unfortunately in some of our campus campus communities. Yeah and it's the kind of campaign as you say which is clearly going to hit home and be incredibly important at the moment. And I think we've seen the challenges that the COVID-19 crisis has caused, obviously everyone in lockdown, um, with the combination of that, but also the protests that we've seen based on what's happened in the United States and then the protests across the world. I think COVID-19 has had a major impact on people's experience of the world and injustices. And I really think it's going to have a huge knock-on effect. Just kind of in, in your world at Bristol at the moment and in your role and, and in the campaigns that you've worked on over the years, how, how do you think COVID-19 is going to have an impact on the student body when they come back either to the UK or back at their university? You know, Do you think we're going to start seeing different things arriving, different things arising in society now? Or do you kind of feel everything will come back to some status quo that we had before? I think it's very difficult to know. But what I do think is it won't be the same as before. I don't think you can turn the clock back. I think that this time has made us aware of lots of different issues, whether it is Black Lives Matter or whether it's about mental health or the environment. You know, we've all took some time out to reflect. And I, I would be really sad if everything just went back to how it was before. I think that we need to keep these things moving. So that's why for me, that campaigning is, is so powerful. And that's actually why I do like working in universities because it enables you to carry on working with young people, working with students' unions, 
to enable them, to empower them to be that change. And, and you know, when students come to me and with ideas about, oh, I'd like to do this campaign, I'd like to do this, whenever I can, yeah, do it, let's do it. And I think that, that that is so important. So I think, yeah, COVID has been really hard and it's it's affected all of us in different ways, but we have to get something positive out of it. We have to reflect and think, yeah, we things can be different, things have been different and things will be different. So, you know, even just thinking about how we work and the pace at which we work or how we provide support to students, we've done things differently. We can carry on doing things differently. We've made things more accessible to students with disabilities. We've gone online. Students like it online. But I think for me, if we can, if, you know, social distancing gets a bit freer and we can start mixing a bit more, to have that sort of blended option, some online stuff, some face-to-face stuff, but to keep that momentum going, to keep that power and enthusiasm going, to make changes, that would, for me, be the most positive thing that we could get out of COVID. Let's not waste the opportunities. Let's keep the change coming. Yeah, I totally agree. Because before, there were so many questions or reluctance around, even just like you said, the way we work, working at home, oh, we can't do that, or we can't do this, and we can't do this project. And COVID has forced us to work in a way where we've had no alternative but to work in that way or to move content online or all elements of services. So I'm in total agreement of you. Let's not waste that opportunity. Let's continue and take what, you know, take what we've learned and how we have been able to be so adaptable in this pandemic because it has been brilliant I think in many ways as well as tragic of course but it has been there's been so many positives that have come out from it. I had a question around um, but I'm just curious when I was reading through your research and you were saying about in some students the um, the violent act or the assault could take place in their home which is generally their student accommodation and as someone who's in the accommodation space that kind of sent a bit of a shiver down my spine because I was thinking well what are we doing in particularly the PBSA space around this. And I'm not aware of many campaigns or many talking about this. Maybe some are starting to talk about it. Certainly not in the way that we've been talking about well-being over the last couple of years, which has been on everybody's plate. If there is a PBSA out there or people who are working in that space and they're in partner with a university, how best do they support a university around this subject? Is it to run a campaign alongside them? Is it to be aware of SVLO support services and individuals? What's the best way to make that relationship work a bit better in this particular space? I think it's both, actually. I think that the campaigning is really important. If we go back to the research, one in four, it's definitely happening in in, in those spaces as well, isn't it? It's just maybe you don't know about it. So I think the campaigning, like you were talking about, that cup of tea video, there's loads of other resources out there that could be used. Or, you know, you could work with the university or the SU and do a joint campaign. But I think it's also about checking and finding out Does that university have sexual violence liaison officers? Who are they? How do we contact them? Is that information available in our accommodation? So what we did at at Keele, you know, we stuck stickers on toilet doors. We put leaflets in, in welcome packs. We put posters up around the halls of residence. 
it was everywhere to the extent that uh, that people on open days used to ask us about it and say, have you got a problem here? Why are you doing so much publicity? And we said, no, we don't have a problem. Everywhere there is a problem. It's a societal problem, but we want to do something about it. So I think it's about those um, private accommodation providers finding out and working jointly with the universities to do something about it building up those relationships, referring students to the specialist support. Um, I mean, there are some key things like to look at as well. What are your procedures? Would you move someone? Where would you move them to? Would you share that information with the university if, if there was a disciplinary case? So I do think it's about that partnership working, developing those processes and procedures, sharing information. But I think the key thing as I said before, making sure the survivor is in control because I have known of some cases where other people, good meaning people, have reported stuff without the survivor even wanting to. Now, you can't do that. You've got to let them make those decisions, make sure they're safe, make sure they're supported and let them come to the decision about what the next step is. Yeah, really good advice there for anybody in that particular space and also I think it works as well interdepartmentally if that's the correct word term because who's to say you know Rob in his position or someone like him in a similar position doesn't spot something in a student and then they open up to them you know they have to be aware of that information within the university as well so it kind of works both inside and outside the community too. I think that's a really really important point Rebecca because basically someone could would could disclose to anybody anybody they trust anyone they feel comfortable with they could disclose or they could talk about their experience but i think the important thing is if you can stop that disclosure before it comes out and get them to that specialist support so it is about you knowing where can students at my university get this spe- specialist support from it's very it's a very important point because it's happened to me multiple times um, and I think especially with international students, it can be even harder depending on cultural norms in their own society. It can be really, really difficult. And often you do become the only person you can trust because they're discussing quite difficult things with you anyway. And it, it kind of then becomes natural to then find a connection and, and sort of talk about other things. And you're absolutely right. It, it becomes really difficult to manage. And it, it is about embedding this in the society of the university as a whole rather than just saying oh okay well we have an svlo that's their job they can look after that problem solved it's this idea of okay yes we may have this model but the structure of what happens is is never as straightforward as that you know people make contact with other members of staff they have better relationships with other staff members it's, it's not as straightforward as saying oh well all students will now go to x point um, it's about, as you say, ensuring that there's a, a holistic approach in an institution to understanding the problem rather than just trying to fix it with putting somebody on a salary and, and claiming that that's problem solved. No, I think you're right, Rob. And I think it is also goes back to the whole thing, really. It's a societal issue, but it should also be a whole university approach to tackling this issue. It is everyone's got a responsibility. Everyone's got a role to play, whether it's challenging unacceptable behaviours or helping people make that journey to get that support step by step. 
I wanted to go back a little bit, Claire, to look at some of the um, interviews that you did in your research, because obviously some key themes came out. And when I read them in detail, there were some things that I learned an awful lot uh, that I would never have thought of before in terms of how students dealt with, um, you know, how they felt afterwards after going through such a terrible incident and how they were treated by either friends or other people or, you know, who they could confide in. Could you talk with us? Because I think it would be interesting for listeners to learn about the key themes that came out of your research and, you know, what was discussed. I think the key thing, just to talk a little bit about my research. So I decided to do qualitative research and only interviewed a small number of survivors. And there was a reason for this. Well, first of all, there was a practical reason. Um, I was working full time. Um limited time and then I changed jobs so I ran out of time literally to do my interviews so I would have probably done more had I stayed in in my current role but I think it was really important that I was able to have these one-to-one interviews to really explore in depth the experiences of those survivors but also the impact of the support that was provided to them so that's what I did I conducted these interviews and then analyzed the key themes So once I'd done the interviews, I then transcribed them and looked at the key themes. And some key themes kept coming up in all the interviews. And some of it I already knew because I had been working with survivors for quite a long time, quite a number of years. But to actually hear the same things been said over and over again, it really does impact on you. I don't think unless you've experienced the devastation of a sexual assault or or something like that, you really appreciate just how much life can be turned upside down by something like this and how every element of your daily life can be affected in so many different ways. So whether it's just been afraid, afraid to go out, afraid to come onto campus, afraid to go back to certain places, afraid to go out and have a drink, all of that sort of stuff, it is just life transforming in a really negative way. And that, I think, is was the most striking thing for me when I was doing that research. Another key thing which all the people that I interviewed talked about was how their experiences had inevitably exacerbated existing mental health issues. So it could have been anxiety or depression or, you know, a whole range of different things which they were already struggling with. But obviously, this experience just just made that even worse. So that, for me, is why it's so important to go back to what we were saying before, that they are able to easily access support. So unfortunately, in a lot of areas, the specialist support, although it is available, there are often really long waiting lists, or it could be the other side of town and difficult to get to. And if you're struggling with being afraid to even leave your house, Are you actually going to be able to make your way to that appointment with what that specialist service? So so those things are really, really important, I think. But focusing on the positive, again, some of the key themes that came out there was how important it was to get non-judgmental support, that the SVLO wasn't making a judgment, but most of all, that they were believing what they were being told and they were being respected. And their views and their wishes were being respected. Because I think one of the key things for anybody who's experienced 
some form of sexual violence is that they've lost control. And that is the most important thing is how you can work with them so that they take that support that so they can take that control back and they feel that what happens next, it's their decision. And I think that's why it's important the SVLOs can work with them to give them the strength, to give them the confidence, to give them the knowledge to make those next steps and make those decisions which can then be life life transforming to maybe hopefully get their life back on track if that's you know pick back up their course if that's what they want to do take a break if that's what they want to do so yeah th- those were the key things and then i think some of the other ones inevitably if you're struggling with all of these different practical day-to-day things struggling with your mental health obviously this is going to impact on your studies so a lot of the the, the students that i talked to you know, explained how, for example, maybe they weren't able to attend classes or they just couldn't focus on their assignments or depending on what they were studying. There was one student in particular who was actually studying a course which was in a similar area. So actually going to a lectures and hearing the lecturers talking about subjects were really triggering for her. So then, you know, she maybe stopped attending classes because of that. The impact on studies, you you just can't underestimate that, I don't think. But for me, one of the saddest things was the impact that this could have on friendships. It's not really surprising. We know that students will often talk to their friends, will often talk to their mates, and maybe they would talk to their friends before they'd talk to their family if they had close friends. But one particular case that really upset me was that the friends themselves had judged her and turned against her. And she went from being a really sociable person with lots of friends going out all the time to finding herself with no friends at one point and then just one friend. And I just, it's really hard to imagine how that must have felt and to have, you know, left home for the first time in her first year at university, you know, everyone in residences wants to make friends, wants to socialise, wants to have fun. And because of what had happened to her and because of the reaction of the, the friends that were around her, she just ended up completely isolated. And it's really, really tragic, I think, really sad. But again, one thing I would say is that all the students that access the support actually were able to carry on with their degree some of them took some time out but carry on with their degree and actually one of them went on two of them actually went on to complete and do master's courses after that as well so yeah I think that to go back to what I keep saying really we just can't underestimate how important this support is to have someone that you can go to someone that you trust someone you can talk to can be as that student said life-saving I think that was also the last point I wanted to make about directly about your research is why it was so important to read your research to hear from the survivors themselves. Because I think, you know, the the wider surveys show that indication of societal issues and, and give thousands of respondents and percentages and numbers and you know, a sense of reality of what's happening in society, which is awful and and very, very important. But when a small scale study comes along like yours and gives 
the voices of the survivors such a platform it, it kind of brings it home and it's not a statistic anymore the sort of harrowing nature of it and the impact becomes a lot more clear and that's why i think a piece of research like yours is so important and no matter how small scale it was in participants its impact is massive because of the the voice of the survivors themselves being given that platform is absolutely crucial and makes makes all the difference and, and moves away from being a statistic to a human being which is essentially what we're talking about and the impact it's had yeah i mean that is why i wrote it i did want to give a voice to those survivors and that's one of the reasons I am really happy that you invited me to come on to, to the podcast tonight so that we can talk about it, so that we can get that word out there, so that other universities can hear about it for themselves and push to get similar support for their students. So I, I have presented at a few conferences and I have presented my research um, and again, similar to what I've done today, really, usually focusing on the impact the voices, getting those voices heard. So anything that I can do to carry on advocating for better support, for change, that that's what I that's something that I'm really committed to. So yeah, thank you really for having me on here tonight so that I can do that. So Claire, if anybody wants to find out more about how to do better in this space or learn more, some perhaps research, are there any resources that you're familiar with that you would recommend to start with? Yeah, um, straight off, um, there are two absolutely fantastic books, which were both published, unfortunately, after my dissertation was written, so I wasn't able to quote them. But there's one which is written by Clarissa Humphreys and Graham Towell, which is called Addressing Student Sexual Violence in Higher Education, A Good Practice Guide. So, so this book is my go-to book. I've actually met Clarissa, I've worked with Clarissa, we've um, talked about this issue. And in this book, her and Graham have just shared all their experience. So Clarissa set up um, the sexual violence team at Durham University, but she shared all her knowledge, all her experience in this fantastic book. So I definitely recommend that. But there is also another book, which I'm also plugging, which is fantastic. And it's called Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, Exploring Victim Blaming of Women Subjected to Violence and Trauma by Dr. Jessica Taylor. This is another fantastic book. Just read that book. <laughs> read those books. Um, we'll definitely include information of those books and those authors because I know both of them and Graham as well. Actually, all three of them are on Twitter because I follow them all. So I'll put them in the show notes so that anybody listening can kind of go maybe and uh, click into it and buy them for themselves. I have one of those books and looking at it right now, I haven't dipped into it in as much detail as you have. And I do want to buy Dr. Jessica. So this is a prompt for me to go online now afterwards and buy it. So there we have it, guys. Um, I hope you found that episode really useful and interesting. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure that you did. It is a difficult subject to talk about. There are some very interesting stats there. And I think the research alone um, is very interesting and certainly brought up a lot of questions for me. What stood out in particular, because I come from the world of student accommodation, it did, I, I guess, in one sense, put a shiver down my spine when Claire mentioned that sometimes an awful lot of sexual violence can occur in student accommodation itself, whether it's university owned or outside of university owned accommodation. And it made me think about what can I do in my role or my day to day job to try and prevent that or what campaigns and activities should I be doing with the teams of people that I work with? Rob, what's the way for you? 
yeah, as you quite rightly say, it's, it is a really difficult topic and it's one which you have to kind of really look at it in a way that kind of makes you feel quite uncomfortable because you, you're kind of asking a lot of questions of the sector, but a lot about yourself. It's, it's a very much a, a reflexive thing to look at the whole sector and kind of how you're a cog in the entire machinations of, of how the kind of campus culture works. I think for me, it was quite frightening looking at the literature review that, that Claire did. And when we were discussing some of the really major research pieces that were undertaken by the NUS, and other bodies along the way just some of those headline figures like the one in four figure of students that were affected I mean that's just terrifying and I think it shows how far we've come when we can sit down and have an episode like this and talk to Claire so openly about this issue and also allow survivors to have their voice heard and to have roles like the SVLO officer I mean I mean that's an amazing role to exist now in 2020 but you know, we look back and it was perhaps only five, six years ago that this was all kind of not even really talked about or even known about. So we've come a very long way in a short space of time, but it, it also kind of helps you realize how far we have to go and how much more there is to do. But it, it gives you, it gives me a lot of confidence and and positivity to know that that people have a bit of security, a bit more security in someone to go to now. I think that that really hammers home for me. So the idea of an SVLO is is an amazing one. And I hope to see more and more universities take up posts like that. I think Claire mentioned there were about 30 in the UK. I think she said universities take up a role like that. Yeah, 30 I think was the number she mentioned. Yeah, um, it is an amazing position and amazing to have those roles in universities you know it's obviously a very important support to have in place but also around the signposting issue and to help that individual you know survivor to decide what best to do for themselves that's that for me as well it's not about saying you must do this or you must do that it's about presenting options and saying you know these are your options what would you like to do you're in charge of the next step and then obviously Claire spoke about legal implications and not to jeopardise criminal procedures and process around that. That's really important to know as well. And I like that we touched on that a little bit because that was something that I really wanted to delve in a little bit more. What was also useful, of course, is that Claire gave us numerous resources and some books and things to look up as well. So we will put them in the show notes for you if you're interested. Um, I have a couple of those books and I would recommend that you get them if you think it's a piece of work that you want to look into a bit more for your department or your area of work. Yeah, absolutely. And I would absolutely echo that. It's it's an area that I've not had much direct experience in in my roles other than students, you know, sometimes confiding in me or, or opening up in, in discussions about other things. And these things tend to just appear sometimes when you're when you're trusted and, and there's a student that comes to you. So it's certainly something that I would like to investigate more and learn more about, because I think we all need to take that step to appreciate what's happening on our campuses. And then speaking of next steps, our next episode is part two. So this is going to be part one and part two of a little mini series that we've done on this particular topic. And we're going to be speaking to Ian Munton from Staffordshire University. And the lovely thing about this episode is that he's almost taken the research that Claire has talked about and he's going to talk to you about how he's implemented such strategies and campaigns and activities in the universities that he's worked in. So you've got all this empirical research that Claire talks about and how she 
embedded it and then you've got Ian who's gone a bit of a step further and talks a bit more detail about that so again each of these episodes kind of go hand in hand and hopefully it'll help you if you if you're thinking how can I use this research how can I make change in my organization or my department I think listen to these together will help you do that so we're looking forward to bringing you that episode as well absolutely and i really hope that you are staying safe and staying well and we will be back very very soon with part two so stay tuned thank you for listening and goodbye